Well, amen. Most of us, I'm sure, at some point in our lives, and maybe for those of us who are a little older, you may identify with this more so than those younger, but I think it's probably happened to all of us at one point or time. We've fallen down um, and or maybe encountered something uh, that has caused um, has caused something sharp that's caused a cut uh, of some kind. And so we're left with an, either an, an abrasion or a cut and that abrasion or cut to our mothers was something that needed to be immediately washed as if gangrene was going to set in at that specific time that it happened. Uh, They would wash it and they weren't always real gentle with it. And then immediately after the washing, they would apply some sort of antiseptic, either in liquid form or spray form that all of course, had some amount of alcohol in it. And of course, the pain from the remedy uh, seemed to be more than the actual uh, injury itself. Um, but if you know, moms, the, moms were, they understood that, and so they would quickly follow that with some sort of uh, betadine or neosporin that would not only provide another layer um, you know, to thwart the bacteria, but, but also provide a, a, a cooling effect to that, to that burning that had just taken place. Regarding our pas- uh, passage tonight, Martin Luther said this, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. After pouring wine into our wound, he now pours oil. The writer who is warning the Hebrews against forsaking Christ and renouncing their faith and shrinking back and falling back into their Judaism has ebbed and flowed. Um, The warning began back in verse 7 and flowed through verse 19, and it was a a severe warning. But then he shifted gears in verses 1 to 11 in chapter 4 and provided more comfort. And then last week we saw him ebb back into, in in, uh, Luther's words, terror. And then we come tonight to verse 14 of chapter 4 and work our way through verse 10 of chapter 5 and find relief. It's, I don't know about you, but it's as if we've been in that state all week having heard how we're laid bare. And we need to feel that soothing balm um, that, that comes also from the word, but comes particularly in this passage tonight, we can't overstate the relief that this passage provides. I mean, let's think about it. You remember, the word is active. And um, Sherry just mentioned it. The word is active. It's effective. It does not return void. And so we heard last week that it's powerful and it performs. The writer was clear that it's never frustrated or defeated. It brings about what it says it will do. It, it, it does what it promises it will do. It, it doesn't need to be added to or taken away from. 
It's sufficient and adequate for the task to which it's been given. He also said that it was sharper than any two-edged sword and that it pierces and divides. So there, there's no blunt edge and it, it's never dull. And so it pierces and penetrates and separ- separates. It never fails to, to be effective and it always reaches where it is intended to reach. And there isn't a, it, it, there isn't a place where it cannot go. And it goes beyond what we think it might To always accomplish what God sends it to accomplish. We heard that it discerns, it critiques, it discriminates, it distinguishes and convicts and pronounces judgment. We don't sit in judgment over it. It sits in judgment over us. When we read it, it reads us. And it does so righteously. It does so fairly and justly without prejudice because God himself is righteous, fair and just. The standard is the same for everyone. It's objective and firm because the standard is the Lord himself. And remember, the Lord didn't stop there because it was not only a sufficient word, but it was a severe word. And we saw the severity of it as he said that the depth and precision of that of that piercing and critiquing and conviction and judgment went to the innermost parts of our being. It went to to the to the heart of who we are. It, It. It affects our thoughts and our emotions and our desires and the intentions and motivations that are present within us. And his word plums the depth, so to speak, of who we are completely and totally. Nothing is, again, out of its reach. And so it works in areas in which we aren't necessarily able to go at times. It definitely goes to places that we don't want to go. It it identifies things that we don't even know exist. It's able to discern and divide from what we say and from what we think and what we do. There isn't anything about us that's left uncovered. And then he shifted from the word of God to God himself in verse 13. And he said, no one's out of God's sight. We continue to feel the weight of that even again tonight when we understand that no one is exempt from the all-pervasive knowledge of God. He sees us for who we are. We're intimately known by Him. There isn't a part of us at all that isn't seen by Him. He knows every detail about us. He knows everything is brought to light by His Word. And so there's nothing that he doesn't understand about us and that his word does not reveal. His knowledge is exhaustive. And there's nowhere we can hide. There's nothing that we can use for cover. We're left naked and exposed and completely and utterly vulnerable before him. Unable to hide. And so every mask that we try to create and hide behind, he removes. Every attempt to be smarter and more righteous and more together and more honest and worthy than we really are just fails. Our our hypocrisy is brought out into the open and, and we realize we're more sinful and needy than than we ever could have thought. We're on full view. We're in full view in front of him to whom we might and we will give an account. 
And fortunately, he doesn't leave us there. Though we left it off there last week and have had to sit in that this week, the writer doesn't leave us there. He didn't leave his readers there. He doesn't leave us there for very long because while God's word does lay us bare and we have no ability to stand on our own and or withstand the judgment of God on our own, he says we shouldn't despair. It could lead us there. If left there, we could fall into despair. But he says in the midst of that and in the midst of the trials and the pressures and the sufferings, in the midst of the temptations and the sins that we battle with, even in the midst of our unbelief, he says the answer, as he's been saying, but the answer is not to fall back, not to give up, not to go back to former lifestyles or to discover new lifestyles or not to forsake Christ or to to give up on our faith and to follow some self-serving, self-satisfying, self-preserving path. He says the answer actually, rather than fall back, is to draw near. In the midst of those things, don't, don't fall back and away from, but draw near. He says, draw near with confidence. Actually, he's, he's going to say, we're going to see, he says, don't look to yourselves, but look to the great high priest. Don't cling to your own circumstances, but in fact, cling to and hold fast to your confession. And then he's also going to say, don't shrink back, but draw near to the throne of grace. That's that's the outline from these verses tonight. Look to our great high priest, hold fast to our confession, and draw near to the throne of grace. And of course, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you by your spirit allow us to consider Jesus more fully and completely tonight? And as we do, I ask that you will equip us to strive to enter into the rest that you've provided for us in and through him. Would you use me in such a way that you accomplish the ends you desire through the preaching of your word that endures forever? Tonight, may it truly be a balm to our weary souls. And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. Well, if you would look at verse 14, again, we're going to be in verses 14 of chapter 4 through Verse 10 of chapter 5, but he begins this section and in, in providing that oil or that balm, having, uh, again, in Luther's words, terrorizes. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And, and what we, as we read that, we realize that this section is not an afterthought. It's not as if he's coming back to something that he forgot. It's not as if he was writing and thought, oh, I need to go back and and stress this point. This is where he's been leading to all along. As we read through this warning in these first sections of this letter, we see that he is very methodically working, purposefully working us to a, a place that he wants us to be. And this section is no different from that. So he's, it's the conclusion that he's been intending to draw from the very beginning. 
And he's been moving in this direction of once again drawing our attention and drawing the reader's attention to look to Jesus as the great high priest. It's something that he introduced to us back in chapter 1 and he's continued to unfold and he does it again here tonight. He's been pointing out throughout the warning that we human beings are sinful. We're sinful and weak and we're extremely susceptible to temptation due to that weakness um, we're susceptible due to our corrupt natures. You know, in some cases, we're lured away very easily. We're easily deceived due to the fact that we're ignorant. In some cases, we just don't know any better. But in some cases, it, it's due to, due to our own being weak and as far as our own wants and our own desires. In other cases, as we read in chapter three, chapter 2, our problem is that we fail. We fail miserably to pay much closer attention to the gospel and the truth about the Lord Jesus. And as we don't pay that close attention, we lose our moorings and we begin to drift. It's subtle and it's slight. But over time, there's a significant change. And we're led astray. Most of, most of the time, we're led astray in an error and wander off into sin. Because as James Writes in James chapter 1, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He says that then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And, all of, and of course, all of that is brought to light through the living and active and double edged sword of the word. It again lays us bare, it exposes us before the Lord. And as we've seen, if we continue to look to ourselves, it leads to it leads to despair because in our own state, we have no way to rectify or remedy the problem. We can't do anything about it in and of ourselves and in our own strength and in our own effort. So the writer says in the last three verses of chapter four and the first six verses of chapter five, basically say, stop looking at yourselves for the remedy. Stop looking to yourselves as if you can remedy the situation because very simply you can't. You can't do that on your own. You know that God, he says, God's been in the business of drawing people to himself. And he's been not only drawing people to himself, but he's been doing it for a long time. He wants to dwell with and meet with his people. And in order to do that... He has, he has provided for them priests. Right? This has been going on since the wilderness. Since our study, we looked at Leviticus last fall. And, and we know that God has been doing this for a very long time. And he's provided priests to be mediators between himself and his people. And those priests were to make offerings and sacrifices and, and to go before the presence of the Lord into the Holy of Holies and to offer those sacrifices on the behalf of the people to atone for their sins. And they did so, the writer says, they did so compassionately and gently because they themselves understood the weaknesses of the people because they themselves were chosen from among them. In other words, they were people too. They were human as well. 
And so they themselves had these same weaknesses. They themselves had these same sinful natures. They had the same sinful desires. They were lured away just like the others were. And so they, because they understood the situation of the people, they went before the Lord compassionately on behalf of the people. And because of who they were, they had to offer the sacrifices for themselves even before they offered them for the people. But the writer also says, Jesus is very different. Jesus is vastly different. He's a great high priest, but he is the high priest. There's a lot about him that's different. He's he's better than Aaron. He's better than the other high priests had ever been. And he says, this isn't just my opinion. The psalmist agrees And he quotes from Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 110. He says he's not even from the line of Aaron. He's from the line and from the order of Melchizedek. He is a kingly priest. And then he kind of just leaves that there. And he comes back to it later in chapter 7. So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to just leave Melchizedek hanging out there. And just to know right now that he is that kingly priest that far surpasses Aaron's priesthood. And his point is Jesus is greater and better. And he's not only he's not only greater and better because he's from the order of Melchizedek, but as we've already seen, he is himself God. He brings us back to chapter one and he says, remember that he is the eternal son of God. He is the co-equal with God, yet he is he is distinct in his person. But then he says, not only is he God, he is also man. He says he's also human. So as we mentioned back in chapter two, he didn't just appear to be human. He was, in fact, human. He wasn't an illusion. His humanity wasn't an illusion. He was in his mother's womb, he was born, he was, he, he grew in wisdom and in favor. He grew physically, he grew emotionally, he grew intellectually, he was hungry, he ate, he was thirsty, he drank, he got angry, he experienced joy and sadness. And we know that he laughed and he cried, but we also, of course, most importantly, know that he bled and died. And the writer says it's because of that humanity. It's that humanity that allows him to not just empathize, but sympathize. He is able to sympathize with his people because he understands the frailty. He understands the weaknesses that come with being human. And while he himself was not enticed inwardly, there was no enticement inwardly because he lacked a sinful nature. He lacked the sinful desires because he lacked the sinful flesh. We do know that he did experience the same external temptations that we all face. And in writing to these Hebrews, he's really saying, look, he has Jesus. He wasn't enticed inwardly, but he has experienced every temptation that you yourselves are currently experiencing to fall back. 
Right? They're experiencing that, that desire to revert back, to forsake Christ, to, to forsake their faith and, and to go back to their Judaism. In other words, they're being tempted to apostatize. And the writer says, Jesus understands that. He understands the external temptation to go his own way. He understands what it means to be tempted, but even more, again, Jesus being greater, Jesus understands far beyond what we even imagine because he experienced the full weight of those temptations because he never gave in. You and I, the Hebrews, quickly give in to temptation. We don't know the full force of those temptations. Jesus not having given in, not having sinned, experienced the full weight, the full magnitude of those temptations. Which is why this one commentator said, from first to last, he had been put to the test. Whether by enticements to self-concern, popular acclaim and ambition for power when assailed by Satan in the wilderness, or by the temptation in the garden to draw back rather than go through the dreadful ordeal that lay before him, or by the taunt hurled at him even as he hung in agony on the cross, there were recipients of this letter, uh, were the recipients of this letter being tempted to lapse into apostasy? Their high priest knew this temptation too, for relentlessly in the wilderness and at Gethsemane and Calvary and even through the lips of Simon Peter, Satan tempted him to abandon his mission by turning from the shame and scandal of the cross. To have succumbed to these inducements would have been the sabotage of our salvation and failure of trust and obedience on his part. In other words, an act of apostasy. It was Jesus as the God-man who, who could and did sympathize with them. right? He was the one that God had appointed as their great high priest. He didn't appoint himself. He didn't exalt himself to that position. He was sent, but he willingly laid himself down. He willingly took on that responsibility. And having made a per- perfect sacrifice of himself... That we read about in Isaiah 53. He laid himself down. He shed his own blood willingly. It was the Father's will to crush him on our behalf. Having died and having been buried. The Father rose him from the dead by the Spirit. And he ascended and went through the heavenlies into the Holy of Holies. That he might offer his own blood before the Father on our behalf. He went into the holy holies, not made with hands. On behalf of those who could not save themselves or atone for themselves. And he he didn't have to make atonement for himself beforehand. Well, in verses 8 and 9, the writer also says that he, as the incarnate Son of God, was completely obedient to the point of death on the cross. And through his, um, through his fulfilling of those responsibilities, he did everything that the Father had sent him to do. He accomplished everything that the Father wanted him to accomplish. And he, was, as a result, was the source of eternal salvation. He was that source of eternal salvation. So he came to make a way that... That people might be saved, that that his people might be saved, and he accomplished that. He succeeded in that. 
He alone paid the debt for sin. He alone was perfectly obedient. And the writer says that this is the one to whom we should look. He and he alone is the one to whom we should look. We need to look away from ourselves and we are to look to the great high priest. Our eyes should be fixed upon him and what he has done for us. But he also says... Not only to look to the great high priest, but he says to hold fast to our confession. In verse 14, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Not only, not only are they to look to Jesus, but they are to hold fast and cling to their confession. We say, well, what is that confession there to cling to? Well, Jesus is not only a great high priest, but he is their great high priest. That is the confession. He is their great high priest. They are the recipients of that eternal salvation. They are the ones who have obeyed. In verse 9 he says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. They are the ones who obeyed. And we say, well, wait a minute. That sure sounds like that, that the writer is saying that our salvation is earned or merited in some way. That if we work hard enough, that we, if we can earn our salvation, we also are able to work and to maintain our salvation through our effort. But to understand what, what he means, we have to look back and see how Jesus himself defined it. If we look at John chapter 6, Jesus says, answers a question. The question came to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And he's repeating what he said in John chapter 3. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the writer is saying that they need to hold fast to their confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is their Savior, and apart from him they have no hope. That's their work. He wants them to obey. Maintain your confession. He died for your sins. He was raised overcoming sin and death for you. He ascended and took that sacrifice of blood into the Holy of Holies for you. But this, of course, isn't easy. It's not easy because for everything that we have to affirm, every truth that we claim for ourselves puts us in a position that we have to make a claim of other truths about ourselves. If we're going to affirm what Christ has done, there are some things that we have to acknowledge about ourselves. So we have to acknowledge, we have to own and to repent of our sin. We have to own and admit that we're in need of salvation. We have to own and admit that, uh, that God has rightfully, rightfully declared us guilty. And that in and of ourselves, because of our sin, we're awaiting the death penalty. We have to own that for ourselves. We have to own that there's nothing that will change that apart from Christ. We have to own the fact that we're completely at God's mercy. We have to own the fact that our only hope is to reach out to Christ and to grab Him and to trust in Him and to call on His name in faith. Because that's all we have. And this was their confession. And this is why he's called them in in earlier in the passage he in Hebrews he called them holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. They've confessed and professed the Lord Jesus. Hold on to that. He's exhorting them and admonishing to not let that go. 
even in the midst of their trials, even in the midst of their suffering, even in the midst of the persecution that the escalating persecution that's taking place, his work remains effective. What he has done still stands. And so he's really encouraging them like we've often sung. He's encouraging them in the words of the hymn writer, when all around your soul gives way, he then is all your hope and stay. And he wants them to hang on. Well, then in verse 16 and then kind of follows it up in verse 7 of chapter 5, he, he speaks of them drawing near to the throne of grace. In verse 16, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And down in verse 7 of chapter 5, he says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It's really straightforward. It's straightforward in that he's saying that in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of your sin, we can draw near to the throne of grace. It's the best thing that we could possibly do is to draw near to Christ. In other words, we need to pray. We need to draw near to the throne of grace and offer prayers before the Lord just as Christ himself prayed in the midst of those circumstances. What was, what was it that he, he thought best to do? He prayed. He went to the one he knew could help. He exhibited a trust and a reverence for the Father. And the writer is saying, so should we. It's the best thing that we could do is to go to the throne of grace and to pray because it's at the throne of grace that we receive the mercy and grace that we need in the midst of our wilderness. There's no better place to go. One commentator put it this way. When we come boldly, what happens? We receive mercy for our past failures and grace to meet our present and future needs. We receive the full heart of God as he mercifully meets us in our sins and misery and heals us. Then we receive the full hand of God's grace, his unmerited favor and loving regard that just keeps coming and coming. We come to the throne of grace, not falling back, moving ahead, moving forward, drawing near to the throne of grace, drawing near to Christ by the spirit. And we go confidently and boldly without hesitation. We don't have to be tentative because Jesus is there interceding for us even now. His redemptive work having finished, having been completed, it is finished. His intercessory priestly work continuing on our behalf. There before the Father, as we come, as we come in our prayers, He's interceding. And the writer says, look, it's as, as if the writer saying, look, He's there, standing there, waiting for you. Go to the Lord in prayer and allow the Lord Jesus to, to stand and intercede and say, it's okay, He's mine. It's okay, she's mine. Grant them mercy and grace, Father. Sustain them. Meet their every need. Grant them peace. They come in my name. Hear them for my sake.
Brothers and sisters, there, there are so many places that we could go in terms of application. Two seem to be most, um, well, seem to be the best. First is the whole purpose of the warning that, that we've been concentrating on the last few weeks is to not shrink back and to encourage the people of God to endure, to persevere to the end. To, to maintain our faith in the midst of the wilderness in which we now live. Because in Christ's own words in Matthew 24, he says, The love of many will grow cold, but those who endure to the end will be saved. And, and we think of the story of the Israelites. And when we are confronted with those today, even today we see who, who fall away, who seem to fall away and renounce their faith and forsake Christ. And it's natural for us to ask Ourselves, we're in our own minds. Is, am I going to persevere? Am I going to endure to the end? We look at others who seem so strong in their faith, and we've been listening to them and reading them, and and we see that later on, then they begin to believe other things and trust in other things and forsake the Lord. And we ask ourselves, could that be me? And when those questions arise, we need to remember that Jesus has been appointed by the Father as a great high priest. His redemptive work is complete. He paid the penalty for sin. He's been completely obedient to the point of death on the cross. His redemptive work being complete, his intercessory work continues now providing for us that which we need to endure He gives himself to us and nourishes us and encourages us and grants us grace and strengthens our faith. So we need to remember in the midst of those questions that those who look to him will persevere. And so in those questions, when you ask those questions, or if you were to come to me and ask the question, will I persevere? I'm going to come back with you, come back to you with a few questions. Are you looking to Jesus as the great high priest? Are you looking to Jesus? Have you acknowledged and confessed your sin? Do you believe his shed, he shed his blood and died for you? And are, are you trusting in his work on your behalf? For your salvation. If you are looking to him. Be at peace. Be at peace. And if you're not looking to him. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. He's our only hope. And then secondly. I want to ask. What suffering are you in the midst of? What pain are you experiencing? What trials are you facing? What temptations seem to just be coming at you left and right? What sin are you struggling with? What is it that you're wrestling with? Know that there is nothing too small or too great. There is nothing too insignificant or substantial. That cannot be weathered 
and overcome or forgiven with the help of the Lord. And let me encourage you to look to him and hold fast to your confession and draw near to the throne of grace. Because there is no greater mediator than the Lord Jesus. He understands you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He sympathizes with you in the midst of your weakness. He's interceding right now for you. Don't allow your circumstances or your situations or even your sin to cause you to draw back. Draw near. Sin and all. Bring it to Jesus. Draw near to the Father in and through Christ by the Spirit with confidence, with joy, with great expectation. He's our only hope. You will receive mercy and grace when you do. You'll receive everything that you need. You will not be left disappointed or wanting. Let's pray together.